Well, I don't have any prepared inanity to start this one with. I was thinking, you know, uh, I should start a book, uh, you know, inane cold opens. There'll be there'll be 300 pages on the weather and and I deal with that, <laughs> which which I think work. But here's here's what here's what I want to ask you to here. Now, on my other podcast, I had this topic, uh, the software defined talk podcast last week. Here's what I want to know. What do executives actually want to hear? When you go talk with CIOs and stuff, what are they, what are they thrilled to hear about? What, what really like, uh, get some chomping at the bit or whatever the metaphor of the, the year is. How about you start first guest? Sure. My name is uh, James Urquhart and I'm a field CTO, uh, at Pivotal. Uh, I, I think what executives want to hear is, uh, that you're going to make them look good. Um, mm. <laughs> that you're to uh, that you're going to provide uh, solutions that are going to uh, achieve the things that they see as most important in uh, in the eyes of their superiors. But also, I mean, you know, and that all has to do with customer uh, success, driving customer success, driving revenue. It all boils back to the usual things that people talk about. But when I, you know, when I speak to an executive, it's more Important for me to know up front what uh, what their biggest pain points are, what are the things that they are considering uh, really critical uh, to address, mm. and uh, and I think when you can address those things, you have a good match. That's right. So so that that's always the most helpful answer is uh, mm-hmm. they want to hear what they want to hear. So you should find that out, <laughs> right? right? You know what what the the critical problems and stuff they're dealing with. How about yourself, Richard? What do you think? Yeah, what that was you- a good answer. I, w- I would have just said Kubernetes. So uh-huh. Thank goodness James went first. <laughs> uh, no, I think that was a great answer. I mean, to your point, it's are we helping them focus on the right stuff? Or are we maybe helping them cut through the fog and just pointing out, you know, the outcomes that matter? To your point, are we helping them solve a pain point? Are they stuck in the mud? So they want to hear kind of a path forward, I think, every time we have conversations mm. at that level is, do you all kind of know what you're talking about? Are you going to help me? And versus just like, hey, give me interesting information that I'll probably forget by the next meeting. That's mm. probably not the point. Yeah. Right. right. See, we can't we can't help but talk about the weather with cutting through the fog. It's just we're we're old, <laughs> we're old enough that that's all that that we it's uh, everywhere we we go yeah. through. Yeah. Next thing you know, in a couple of years, we'll be talking about uh, you know cancer and which of our friends has died or not. Do do the roll call. I, I, <laughs> if, if I if I remember what my grandparents their favorite topics were, and I'll, and as always, the price of milk. You got to cover mm-hmm. that as as a bellwether. Well, uh, as as uh, as mentioned, we have we have James as our guest on this episode. I think uh, when, when did you join Pivotal? Was it January? I I don't in remember. December, first week of December. I first came. week of December. Yep. Well, that's exciting. Well, well, we'll we'll come back uh, as always to to talk with you. But first, uh, and feel free to join. in. there's there's some uh, little news items or things we would like to call attention to. What, uh, what, what, why don't you start us off, Richard? Yeah. So what do we got here? So the first thing I thought I'd point out was the, uh, the sneak who's a partner of Pivotal's great security company they issued a, an interesting security report last week. It was the state of open source security and just a lot of findings. We'll have the link in there. You should absolutely read it. It's a, it's an easy, easy read, but just a big increase in vulnerable libraries for people doing dependencies in their application code. Developers actually think they should own security, but don't feel like they have the right tooling. Even people who run open source projects want to be secure. They don't. Their goal, I don't think, is to have an insecure library, but a lot of them lack some skills to do it. And if you look at the most popular container images, most of them have a lot of vulnerabilities in them. So it's just an interesting landscape review of, yeah, security still is a, a tricky thing. 
here's some things to maybe focus on. And it obviously should probably dictate some of your technology purchases and strategy. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think as I've joked about here, I always, I always metaphorically equate security to like food must taste good. And I guess, <laughs> I guess metaphorically speaking, there's a lot of food that doesn't taste good out there that uh, that people are buying, which is unfortunate. Maybe they just need to add yeah, like, I, some salted butter. Yeah, I look at like empty calories, right? There's a lot of processed food out there that people really don't know whether or not it's actually good for them. Mm. Kind of yeah. So sort of know. sort of like uh, shelf cheese, like cheese that can sit on a shelf, right? Or exactly. Can. Or or you know, um, uh, uh, truck stop sushi. Oh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but, I mean, James, I guess question for you is even in something like this, maybe back to the even that early question, Cote, you asked about like, what executives care about. I guess very few of the current technologies are all touting right now, whether that's containers, whether that's microservices architectures, whether that's even serverless, don't necessarily negate most of these concerns that they call out here. Like now you're using containers from third parties could have vulnerabilities. Now your app code right. is more distributed and you're using more dependencies than ever. That's a new attack surface. And serverless and a single cloud, well, now there's a single place to go attack you. Like it just seems like the ball, I don't know, maybe the, the goalposts keep shifting versus necessarily stamping out old security concerns, new ones are popping up. What, what's your sense of that kind of, I don't know, is there any sort of false confidence we get from current trends that some of these old things are going away, or are we just finding new problems? No, I, well, I, the, the, I think there is a trend that's understood that as you move to clouds where other people have to maintain layers of what you're dealing with, it's secu security is their problem at those layers, right? Um, the Amazon shared security model, I think, is sort of becoming the assumed model in a lot of ways for people who consume cloud. So that part of it is is kind of good, right? If you're a developer and you're like, hey, I'm, you know, now more and more the unit of deployment is the unit I actually care about. So we're going from, you know, from servers to processes with containers to functions with serverless. That's great. Um, and all that other stuff should be dealt with by somebody. However, um, if you're going to consume stuff that has been delivered by a, an unknown party that you can't uh, you can't uh, identify succinctly that they are maintaining the security and that they will update and patch and have a mechanism to update and patch without disrupting you, um, then it is, in fact, your problem to deal with the security of those third party things that you're consuming with and to make sure you understand them, which is why I think there's so much. Uh, focus in a lot of organizations on beginning on vetting what containers uh, uh, are allowed and, and consumed within the organization. Um, and so, you know, putting more restrictions on what developers can do in order to uh, increase or decrease the risk of security issues. Um, so I think we're going to have this this heave and ho for a while and, and, and it might drive mechanisms in the industry to make sure that things are secure before they're offered, like what Apple does with the App Store. Um, or it might drive, um, you know, in, in, in insane decisions by individuals and organizations to um, to, you know, jump through hoops to test everything that they've got for security problems. I guess that's not insane, but, you know, but there's going to increase the workload for the depth. Sure. Yeah. Cool. You sort of have, uh, I, you know, at the very minimum, new things to worry about. And uh, and, right. and, and as a result, the. Uh, I don't know what the security people call it, but like the models of consideration to uh, to think about 
when there's some new yeah. thing. We, we lose sight of the fact that there are new things to worry about. We lose sight of the fact that there are some old things that are being taken off the table for us to worry about. Oh, That's yeah. a good point. Uh, right. So it's I don't know that it's a net even or anything like that. But I do think it's important to note that um, that, you know, there are mechanisms out there to allow others either within your organization or outside of your organization to deal with layers of, of security that were your problem in the past. Mm. Yeah, your problem. Well, speaking of your problem in the past, we'll see if this transition <laughs> works out well. So that uh, as as I mentioned over the past, uh, I don't know, many episodes, I've been working on this little booklet or report as O'Reilly calls it. Uh, and uh, now it's available. Uh, for people to have. I don't know if you can like get it from somewhere other than Pivotal at the moment, but uh, it's called uh, Monolithic Transformation. And I had, I had our, uh, I, I had a moment of marketing genius where I came up with a, a very lengthy URL, which is uh, pivotal.io <laughs> slash monolithic transformation, which, which, uh, you know, you got, you got a spelling challenge there. How do you spell mm-hmm. monolithic? But uh, so that book's out now. People can go check it out. And uh, I think maybe there's like three sentences on security because I don't know anything about security. Uh, so so why write it? I figured I'd use all of my my uh, my energy on talking about things I don't know about on the rest of the book rather than <laughs> security. Makes sense. That's a good book for Cote uh, not plugging the content, a lot of the content itself. It's a great book. It's absolutely something everybody should read. It's freely available. It'll be up on Safari Books online in a couple months, but I think Pivotal gets a free period where it's just available from us. Oh, an exclusive. It is an exclusive. So, so when uh, when when am I going to be able to retire to uh, a, a Tuscan villa? Since you've written one of these reports, what's the timeline I'm looking at, Richard? Yeah, I think it's when you're about 300, uh, based on the number of royal, <laughs> amount of royalties you get. Oh, yeah, that's right. If so. I if I survive the uh, the uh, cancer cancer parlor catching up of old age, yeah. and uh, and become a vampire, then uh, yeah, you'll then be, be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What what do you think the average length of a vampire's life is? Do you think do you think do you think they do all right, or do you think it's sort of like a, a high risk early early death situation? Well, that's a good question because yeah, I think the average. I mean, you're not being killed. Isn't it like six or eight hundred years old or something like that? But no. you're right. You are. There's a lot of stakes in the heart risk going on around it's, there. It's a it's a high stakes life. If you will. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> Well, also, the digital transformation, stay for the vampire talk. That's exactly. The, Maybe that'll be our new topic, the undead. <laughs> uh, well, also, uh, you know, speaking of other things, we launched uh, we launched the Intersect website and newsletter, oh. uh, which which has already got it's got a uh, CIO's guide. Speaking of what executives want to hear, there's a CIO's guide to Kubernetes, which which is pretty good. I uh, I sent something over about like how to actually like test and validate corporate strategy. Which, which uh, we'll see if that's anything. But uh, what, what other kind of stuff is have, have y'all seen on there? Well, yeah, I, I, yeah James I, already has a piece up there. Which oh, is that's right. I published a piece on uh, an interesting effect that I saw that we could talk about later. But in short, um, with uh, using a platform and having a platform team that can maintain security of, of all the, you know, the, 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 Building components and and the underlying uh, operating systems and systems and so on. Uh, the, a, a very large bank was essentially uh, discovering that they had n- no of the normal resistance that they get from security and audit teams, or very little of it, much less of it. Um, and 
uh, surprisingly more resistance from developers who were nervous about all that stuff that was being done for them and what that meant to their productivity. And the great thing about the platform is uh, it, it shows you that you can update all that stuff and not affect developer productivity. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, one of the reasons for those who are unfamiliar with Intersec, we, we launched it mainly because we saw a gap between, I don't know, because some of the general purpose executive advice and then the super low level, like, you know, here's how you configure something in a you know Bosch manifest or a Kubernetes release. So what is that middle section of like executive advice about technology? And so that's what Intersect is. It's a website. It's a newsletter. So definitely go check that out, Pivotal.io, and see what you think. Mm, that's right. There's no... Uh... There's no uh, Meco charts in Bosch, unfortunately. So it can't you can't automate your your strategy? Need some other stuff. Well, and uh, you know, do people are people still uh, pedantic about on premise versus on premises? Are we over that? What what are y'all two encounter? Oh, I'm I'm pedantic as heck about it. So I, I assume <laughs> premises on premises. That's right. No, it's on premise. Uh oh. Oh, no, it's on-premises. No, you're right. It's on-premises because pre premise in the case of on-premise means the, the, the context around an idea, right? The premise behind That's an right. idea. That's right. So, so maybe on-premise would be uh, the idea originates from you. It's on your premise instead of some other person. You haven't right. outsourced your, your thinking to someone else, which, which is probably good, except maybe, you know, in like medicine and things like that. You might want to outsource it. And, and, and I hear in finance, but, you know, we'll see. Well, uh, there's a couple of on-premises uh, items. One, uh, there's, I think, uh, there's a beta of, of Google's uh, cloud thing out. And, and you wrote a post on that, Richard. So give us a, a little summary of it. Yeah, I just dug into it for an InfoQ article about their new cloud services platform. Pretty much a hybrid kind of play from Google that for something that runs on-prem, really the flagship part of it is the Google Container Engine on-prem or Kubernetes Engine, GKE on-prem. But then they wrap in things like Stackdriver for monitoring, and you can put things like Knative on it. Really, again, recognizing the hybrid need people are running in both places. One of the things I referenced in the, the article and the Google fellow who they quoted in their errors making the statement that instead of even seeing it as these clouds against each other, like it's Google versus Amazon versus Microsoft versus IBM and Alibaba, it's really the stacks. Like what are the durable stacks that are going to win? And in their mind, this could potentially be that durable stack made up of like Istio, Envoy, Kubernetes, Knative. Like does that become a new LAMP stack hypothetically or something like that? But is there a durable stack that kind of wins at the market, almost agnostic of the cloud? Mm. So interesting yeah. Interesting goal there. It's just certifying an on-prem platform takes a long time. So just the question will be, given they say, you know, even Google says, hey, we want to go through all the certifications. That's a long journey. So I don't know when customers can really bank on this being a thing. Yeah, I, um, it's interesting. It's an interesting play. I, I worked on the Microsoft uh, Azure Stack stuff in the early days uh, as part when I was part of Dell. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I, I personally think it's all about the services. Mm. Um, and so uh, it, it, the stack matters less than the availability of services that work the same in public and private. But uh, that's a personal opinion. Oh, you mean, you mean the uh, the non-human services, like the uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 the non-humans. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Yeah, no, I mean it's a, it's all in terms of the the infrastructure services that uh, and cloud services that are delivered yeah the actual features that that are out there i don't know to put it one way well then also uh 
are are uh, there, there's there's now I I was talking again on my other podcast about the impressiveness of the uh, the page over at VMware on their uh, mm-hmm. their Kubernetes distribution where they just there's just three things, <laughs> but there <laughs> there's uh and and just very clear links of them. But now now from VMware and Pivotal you can get uh, three distinct uh, Pivotal uh, container service. Uh, I don't know what you would call them. Um, distributions or running instances so you got your 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 community one which correct me if i'm wrong but it's kind of the ongoing evolution of the the heptio thing uh to have with some some uh, sort of community driven support around it then you've got your uh let's call it classic pivotal container service uh and then there's a um uh, I don't know if people call it managed anymore, but there's there's a managed run for instance that you have that uh, VMware will manage and run for you. So what did what did I get what did I get yeah. right there? I mean, I love that you. I mean, amazingly, for each three, I actually used the wrong name for each one, which just makes me love you. So. I try to, you know, I try to be unbiased. They always no, tell I'm me. Just... They always tell me when I go talk, don't give us a vendor pitch. So if I'm ignorant of what the vendor does, I can't give a pitch. <laughs> That was perfect. I mean, I was really thinking the last one you were going to get right, but that uh-huh. was, uh-huh. Ugh, I love you. Uh, so yes, yeah, essential PKS is, is upstream Kubernetes, a lot of Heptio stuff, absolutely. Enterprise PKS is the one you already know and love, the one that runs on all the clouds, kind of traditional PKS. And there's cloud PKS, the managed one that runs in AWS and other clouds in the future. So the goal is, look, different Kubernetes for different stages. If you already run this yourself, and you really want support from now one of the largest contributors to Kubernetes, not to mention the company that has two of the creators in there, like that's probably a good service to buy. That's great. If you don't really have those skills internally and don't want to be in the business of running a lot of Kubernetes, the enterprise is great. That's an ideal choice, especially when developers are asking for it. And if you want nothing to do with it except serving up an endpoint, then use the hosted managed version. It's not even a progression, I don't think, because you could go from immediately to the cloud version. Or you could be using the essential one because, look, you already feel like you're experts. You just want somebody to call if something breaks. So I don't think it's even this sort of progression that you move between them. It just means where are you, which stage, any of those could be a good choice. Mm, indeed. Well, thanks for correcting me there. I'm going to go no, I'm, I'm going to go make some flashcards and uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll practice that. Have you, have you all ever looked in Kindle and they have flashcards in there? Like, I always wonder if anyone actually uses that. That seems like, uh, I don't know, maybe for the textbook stuff, but it seems maybe. awfully proactive of people. It's sort of like, it's sort of like if you logged into Medium and by default it did the five paragraph essay like, uh, template. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that's a technology anymore. So then, uh, then finally there's a couple of items that, uh, you put in there, Richard. You want to cover those and then we'll, we'll get to James. Yeah. Real quick, just for those who are starting to pay attention again, even from a, an executive leadership level, let alone technical leads, but chaos engineering. And they see this idea of purposely introducing some instability, if you will, to test hypotheses about the reliability of your systems and what happens when certain things go wrong. And how do I test and experiment, not just randomly shut things off and see what happens, but have some hypotheses, test them, harden your systems, make them better. Gremlin's a great company who does a lot of great stuff around there. They announced a free version of their product that helps you do things like shutdown attacks and actually shut down and reboot different hosts or containers. You can experiment and see what happens or even kind of CPU tests to see what happens if you just flood a CPU, what happens to your application. So Gremlin's great software for this. There's other technologies that help with this too. But if you're trying to dip your toe into chaos engineering, it seems like a great choice. 
Well, then also, uh, before, before we get to the uh, the last part, I, I just want to remind everyone we got a bunch of uh, Spring One tours going on. These are these are little regional events we have that uh, are uh, that basically bring. It's mostly programmer focused, but we also go over uh, things like uh, Kubernetes and uh, Pivotal Container Service and Pivotal Cloud Foundry. And uh, the ones I go to, I try to give some uh, discussion about why all this matters and, you know, aligning with the business and, and, and overall how you're improving the way you're doing your software at a, a corporate level. Uh, but we've got one coming up in London, uh, March 18th and 19th. And, uh, you know, I think that'll I'll be at that one. It'll it'll be fun to uh, check that out. There's, and then there's going to be another one in Amsterdam on March 21st and 2nd. And, of course, I'll be there. Uh, and there's a way to get uh, a reduction uh a discount on the tickets if you go check out the show notes over at uh, pivotal.io slash podcast. And if you have a pin ready, the code is S1 tour 2019 underscore 100. So, uh, that'll, that'll, uh, give you some amount off. Interestingly enough, it's not actually a hundred units of cash that you get off. So it'll be mm-hmm. a fun game to see, see what you get. And there's all <laughs> sorts of other uh, spring one tours happening uh, globally. If you want to uh, go check that out, I think you can go to spring one tour.io uh, to see it. And then finally, I know all of us are excited about this. The, um, the call for papers or the submissions for spring one platform uh, is open so uh, there's probably each of us is is helping select talks and various uh, tracks and doing things like that. So you can be guaranteed it'll be a great show. And because Richard's involved, we'll use the proper product names for things. So you'll you'll have that. <laughs> no <to> promise. <laughs> yeah. But it'll be it'll be in my hometown uh, of Austin, Texas. So uh, it's a good excuse to come to Austin. And I just remembered that either weekend there is uh, Austin city limits. So we're sandwiched in between there, uh, like like some delicious meat. Uh, between two pieces of uh, of good bread, I don't know. I'm going to go for maybe a pastrami or a Reuben. I think that's that's what it, it seems like. But but uh, anyways, it's it's a good it's a good reason to come check out how to uh, help your organization get better at software. And uh, there'll be also just sort of like general uh, improving the way you do programming and also uh, do your your operations and DevOps and things like that. And then you can come to Austin eat a beef rib or uh, some excellent vegetarian vegan options if you're not into that kind of thing. So so with that, why don't you uh give give a a, a large introduction to yourself. What do you uh what what's your story? What what do you what do you do around here and uh what have you been up to in in past years? Who are you? <laughs> so again, I'm I'm James Urquhart and uh I'm in the Field CTO, uh, Global Field CTO Organization at Pivotal. I'll explain that a little bit more in a second. Um, my background is in distributed systems. Uh, since the early 90s, I've been working in various forms of what that means. Uh, uh, early, early client server work with um, small talk and, <clears throat> believe it or not, a small talk front end talking to a Foxpro back end, which, you know, some of us who come from that era will recognize as not being as weird as it sounds today. Um, and uh, kind of uh, first vendor that I worked for was a company called Forte Software, which did a 4GL environment for building distributed systems. Um, I spent uh, four years working uh, in the field as a consultant there and learned a huge amount about uh, the pressures of, of building uh, a distributed system that can scale, that can fail, uh, has failure recovery capabilities and so on. Um, and uh, uh, when Sun bought 
Forte has spent about six years doing various things at Sun. Um, if you were forced to change either your screen name or your username at some point with uh, Java Suncom or, or one of the other Sun.com properties, that was me. I uh, I drove that project and and uh, various uh, interesting things in my past there at Sun. It was a very kind of heady time at Sun, and then uh, from there. Uh, did uh, some work at Cisco um, and uh, uh, doing st- uh, cloud strategy work. Uh, worked at a, before that. I worked at a company called Cassat, which did uh, distributed uh, the data center automation, and uh, that sort of led me to start blogging and led me to start writing a blog called The Wisdom of Clouds, which um, which was an early cloud blog in which you know I was very lucky, got quite a bit of play and and quite a bit of uh, uh, influence for a while there. Um, I ended up at CNET, I ended up, the blog ended up at CNET about the time that I was at Cisco doing the cloud strategy stuff. Um, and then uh, I went to a little startup called Instratus, which did um, uh, uh, multi-cloud VM automation uh, back in the EC2 pre-container days. And uh, that was eventually sold to Dell. Um I did uh, VP of product there. And so, you know, they have a really wide, varied background in both field and product um, uh, related roles um, over time. My last uh, role was at AWS, where I was a GM for a team that was working on uh, a application for uh, the field that they were wanting to platform eyes for the rest of Amazon. And then, you know, I, I'll just simply say that it is AWS and they're always looking for things that could go further. But our target was Amazon at the time. Uh, and, uh, and you know, as, as that wrapped up, I uh, decided I didn't want to manage engineers anymore and wanted to get back out in the field, get my hands on stuff. So I came here to Pivotal and the CTO org, the field CTO org at Pivotal is a resource that's uh, really uh, some amazing people, and, and, and then me. Um, <laughs> but some there's some great people out there that know a lot about um, uh, about a number of core enterprise distributed cloud-based development and cloud-native development topics that can speak to an executive and work with an executive on st- at the strategic level. Um, and in terms of sort of uh, helping to evaluate the effectiveness of how they are approaching cloud native and getting the benefits of cloud native. Um, so we do a variety of things from, uh, you know, from kind of security deep dives to, uh, you know, uh, helping to uh, watch how a, a number of different projects are adopting new cultural practices and in the pivotal way. Um, and uh, and to talking about different ways that digital transformation that you know that that software can affect digital transformation and how that uh, how the platform can be applied or software can be applied with the platform to address those issues. Um, so I'm bringing to a number of customers, uh, mostly in the West, in my case, um, but there are the people that will um, all over uh, internationally and and. Uh, but we're applying. I'm applying uh, my background in distributed systems development, in uh, in identifying software as a complex adaptive system and what that means in terms of of uh, design and practices. 
in terms of um, cultural change and uh, the the topic of uh, uh, Mike's great book uh, is a, is something that I've gone through several times uh, um, deconstructing monolith applications. Um, and so uh, I'm bringing all of that background to these customers and working uh, with uh, senior technical people generally in terms of identifying the best strategic way to approach those things. It's awesome. Good. So one of the things I mean in that that long history is you know especially with the Instradius time as you were thinking multi-cloud way back then when it was like hey do I need multi-cloud manager tools where I spin up infrastructure in different places? What's your take on the current? not just multi-cloud landscape, but even the imperative. Like, what? Why does someone really do that? Why does someone care? What advice would you give to a leader in an organization around the multi-cloud strategy? Yeah, I, my, my personal opinion on the multi-cloud strategy is it's, it's very critical in two contexts. One context is, is that you have an organization that has a lot of things that just won't move tomorrow and migrate in a you know six month migration plan uh, because of various technical requirements, because of maybe regulatory requirements, because of um, uh, resource limitations that you might have. Um, in those situations, um, very often it's it's good to allow um, or things to happen organically in terms of cloud native adoption. And in those situations, you may have on-premises plus uh, a public cloud, or uh, very often there'll be on-premises and, and multiple uh, public clouds in part because some of the technologies at, uh, at uh, one cloud vendor may be better for the technologies that were used in the legacy system uh, uh, prior. Um, versus another that gives you, you know, better innovative capabilities or whatever it may be. So um, that's one area. And the other area then is um, organizations that are really looking to um, to spread risk and to take advantage of the strength of certain um, cloud providers. Um, and and generally, where I see this is, you know, the, a, an adoption of um, Azure or um, or AWS for kind of compute capability, and then maybe a focus on um, GCP for da the data services that they have and and uh, some of the really innovative data um, and analytics capabilities and machine learning capability that they have. Um, but there there may be a number of other different reasons why an organization that has enough applications out there with enough different use cases will say, you know what, I, you know, love vendor A, but there are technologies that I really don't want to lose sight of in vendor B, and I don't necessarily want to wait for. Um, and so in those situations, uh, once again, um, you, 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 it's hard to predict where those applications will end up. And so you need some flexibility in the way that you consume clouds. And those, uh, But those are the two kind of use cases where I really see it. And if you're, you know, wh where there's less of an imperative, to do multi-cloud is in an organization where it's maybe a startup or it's an organization that has a very consistent uh, set of technologies they need to bring forward and there's a cloud provider that meets that need very strongly. Uh, in those situations, there might be financial incentives from the cloud provider that would make it uh, reasonable to um, focus on one vendor versus the others. Makes sense. So, so uh, somewhat related to that, like I mean, as as you're going over, there's a uh, in a uh, a mature, usually well functioning, but sort of like big organization. There's there's a whole lot of existing software. Maybe even some of your uh, 
you know, your Fox Pro stuff from back in the day. Right. I think there's some FileMaker things I wrote that might be operating somewhere still, uh, which which is exciting. Wait, which which didn't Microsoft buy one of those things, Richard? Or, or am they I bought Fox Pro. Okay. I think FileMaker's right. still out there. That's the first thing I was programming yeah, yeah. in, like yeah. 98. I yeah. think I haven't checked in a while, but I think I think FileMaker's indirect, not indirectly, but I think they Apple owns the company that makes FileMaker. I think you're right, which is curious. Yeah. Any Claris, <laughs> I think it's called. Uh, anyhow, uh, how like 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 I mean, especially since you know, in part part of your background is being in the uh, the uh, I don't know the the exciting uh, Thotterati class of cloud stuff with the wisdoms <laughs> and the whatnot. So like what. At this, at this, uh, this is like, what is this, March 4th, uh, 2019? What's the deal with like bimodal IT as something helpful or not? Cause it seems like, mm, there's a lot of stuff to deal with. And if, if, uh, if you're sort of gonna apply like awesome DevOps principles to like your highly customized ERP system, it, it seems like there's some way that that should be managed or not. And, and, and to close out my, my statements here. You know the uh, the the DevOps people were all like, you know, bimodal IT is going to destroy you faster than just you know lighting your ship on fire in the middle of the Atlantic. So you should not do that. But uh, where where are we as far as like balancing out in a large organization? How you should think about your existing portfolio versus your brand new stuff? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the bimodal IT concept, and the reason is because it creates an uh, an unnatural silo between um, teams that are working on different technologies. That is, given the history of silos that we've seen in the enterprise in the past, uh, is going to end up with politics that you don't want. It's going to end up with bureaucracy that you don't want. It's not uh, a smart way to go after. Uh, improving your organization's um, ability to adopt new technologies versus old. I'm I'm more of a fan for a, a, an organization that's mature enough in their culture um, of of what Simon Worley has talked about um, with ta- uh, the pioneer settler town planner model. So it sounds like it's a three modal thing. What's the difference? But the real difference is because there's an intentionality in that model of of. of driving the stealing of technology from, say, settlers stealing from what the pioneers discover and make work to build and scale out new applications that have value and find that value in their respective market, whether that's an internal market or external market. And then for town planners to to take the stuff that really works that the settlers have, have discovered actually has a market and has a, a need to scale um, and has a definition, some definition around to it, and then to drive both scale and efficiencies out of that. Um, and so, you know, as as Simon's been pointing out lately, it takes a fairly mature organization that has a culture in which technologies can be easily consumed across those boundaries um, to drive that. That so, the first thing I, I always tell every organization to work on is, you know, you've got to get good at that cellular structure. Um, for doing development, you've got to get good at that ability of understanding that there there are owners for pieces of what you do, and those pieces are going to be codependent in various ways and have to interact with each other in various ways. So you need to build the culture and the technology, um, but culture first in this case, to really allow for that um, that shared operation and that that treating everybody that, that is dependent on your technology as a customer. Uh, as opposed to as another team that that's you know that's filing tickets with you, 
Um, and that transition, that cellular transition allows you to begin to look at which projects kind of need what kind of people and what kind of attitude to, um, to do what they need to do. And if it's experimentation and heavily trying to figure out whether you can make something work, you have a pioneer to kind of take it. If it's, hey, we've got something here that works, but we need to figure out how to productize it, how to make it something that's easily consumable and that has a market fit, um, then you, you get a team of people who are really good at seeing the value in technology that's been created and, and figuring out products from that. And then, um, and then, or, or, you know, and there'll be multiple teams of this. And then if you've got something that's like, man, this thing is really critical to the business, it's got to scale. Um, but also we, you know, we need to get the costs, uh, uh, you know, make sure that the costs are as optimal as possible in running this thing. And it's not going to go through massive change. It may, it may get updated regularly, but it's not, the form of it won't change significantly. Then, um, you know, you get people who are really good at driving that. So the people who've been, owning data centers for the last, you know, 20 years, probably, um, a lot of them are really good town planners. They, they, they are focused on driving efficiencies out of the system as opposed to how fast can we build this up as, you know, as big as we can. Um, and so uh, that's, that's the model that I see um, in the long term is kind of working, but you got to start with that cellular structure. You don't have the flexibility and the breakdown in bureaucracy that will allow it to be successful or allow any model to be successful because as soon as you have those those lines hard and fast lines and political lines between different technology groups they won't interact um, or they'll try to avoid it and you'll end up with two paths or three paths or four paths or however many of those boundaries that you have yeah and i i get you know what the 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 word i kept uh remembering as you're going over that was just uh intentionality right and i think uh <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I always joke overly about it, but like, you know, you should, you should stop doing dumb stuff. <laughs> like, like if, if there's some way of running IT that's like not working and, uh, you know, you're the, the, the classic bugbear example is we have this system that was awesome 10 years ago and now it's, it's mission critical, but we have to keep dumping money into it and the business doesn't really understand the value of it because we're completely disconnected and people are grumpy about it. And, um, you know, there's there's rather than thinking like, oh, just let that thing keep running. There are definitely uh, plenty of, of lessons about how to uh, run the culture of that, so to speak, so that uh, things work better. And then, you know, I also think, uh, you know, there's a certain amount, as as you're saying, of you're just setting yourself up to have more of these problems in the future. You're basically avoiding fixing the problem. Uh, but, but that's a, that's a, that's, that's a good summary of it. I was thinking, you know, what we should do is sure. we, we should get a transcript of your answer and use that as a new intersect post. I think that, that would, that <laughs> would be go. exciting. There you go. <laughs> I think it is. Well, let me just give it one quick soundbite piece of it too. I personally think that it's harder to decouple development, uh, you know, development innovation uh, I think it's easier to decouple the development innovation from process than it is to decouple it from politics. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wait, what does politics mean in that con the context of IT and all of this? Well, I mean, a lot of this has to do with people's control and 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 influence within the organization, right? So, um, organizational structure, um, uh, ownership of major decisions. Um, I, I think very often when you have, uh, uh, you know, it, it goes back to um, 
to uh, 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 I can't Con Conway's. All right. It goes back to this idea that your software will reflect the com the communic the communication structure of your software will reflect the communication structure of your organization. Um, when people are still fighting to maintain uh, an organizational structure that gives them some influence and gives them some foothold to to move forward. Um, very often to me, that's, that is where it gets harder. When somebody says, look, the way I'm going to, um, the way I'm going to, uh, to gain, um, political influence or the way I'm going to handle my politics is to actually give up some control to a more cellular thing and allow, you know, allow the success of that, uh, approach that's been proven over and over again elsewhere to drive my success and make, and going back to the beginning of the podcast, make me look good. That's going to be my political influence. Um, those those are the those are the executives I see being significantly more successful um, right now within IT. But there's still plenty of people who look at the town planner kind of scenario situations that they own and they say, "Uh, uh this is going to stay like this because it works and because it gives you know and because." That's my success story. Mm. Yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, the politics part. Of uh, I should go back and reread this book now, but I, I read this book, uh, The Wolf and CIO's Clothing. You ever, you ever read that one? It's by a uh, a Gartner yeah. analyst. I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, so I will do it. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's by Tina Nunyo, N-U-N-N-O, and it's it's uh. There, there's the positive version of, of, of her advice and also the negative version or cynical of like how to deal with politics and organizations. And it's basically, as the subtitle says, a Machiavellian strategy for successful IT leadership. I was, I was, it'd be fun to get her to come like give some talks, but yeah. yeah. And, and then, and then also just to, to, to free associate. It's interesting that the, as I recall, uh, the the sort of literal definition of politics is like of the people, whereas really when we say politics in this context, we mean of the rulers, so to speak. So it's a it's a fun uh, mismatch of it. We should come. I don't know if it's uh, oligarchics. I don't know what the uh, the proper ancient <laughs> Greek phrasing would be. Yeah, that's interesting. Nice, good. Well, I wanted to ask you, James. Part of that kind of decoupling teams. I wanted to give you just a couple minutes to even describe what you've been thinking around event-driven architecture and flow. And so how does that even feed into this model of thinking of IT differently, thinking of how teams work, sharing data, you know, in a more real-time fashion instead of the batch processing? So could you give us a couple-minute explanation of what you see as maybe this resurgence of event-driven architecture, and how does it maybe coincide with even some of the org things you just laid out? Yeah, I think so. What what drives this is a combination of what serverless is demonstrating, in my opinion, as being um you know, a, a very quick composable model. I, I will reserve my opinion on manageable until um, it's scaled out a little bit in use. Um, but it, it, you know, but technologies are being worked on in terms of management. And I think that's a solvable problem. But, um, but basically the idea is this, the, the, the definition of an application um, has been changing significantly from over the last 20 years. If you look at what an application was in the dot-com era and what people would point to that, you know, there's a, a fairly sophisticated large team effort to bring all the pieces together that would be deployed as a unit um, to maintain a website, say for a commercial website. Um, and that was a, you know, that was a pretty big, um, and, and they were all on the same schedule and all on the same, uh, you know, with the same marching orders, et cetera. Um, the, the difference now is we've really seen that breakdown, even with microservices and the philosophy behind microservices, we're seeing the breakdown of not only 
the structure of the application, but also the organization that supports that application. So in some cases, microservices are sort of, there's many microservices that are part of a development team that maintains a single backlog across those. In other situations, there might be a, you know, a small number of developers that maintain a given service um, with its own backlog per service. Um, but you're beginning to see that breakdown also applies to the front end pieces where, you know, there may be a, an overarching application front end that owns the main URL that customers go to, but the pieces that build the page are being delivered by different teams on different schedules. And the, so that's part A is sort of that breakdown into kind of more and more granular pieces. And the second piece of that then is that, that the event driven nature of what's happened with AWS Lambda, especially initially has kind of demonstrated this idea that that services can push information out about activity, about um, changes in data, um, about, you know, anything that that is relevant to other systems that would want to know about a change in context. Um, they can post an event that says, hey, X just happened. Uh, you know, an API call just came in is the, is kind of the obvious one. But if you look at the events that are available in AWS services that, you know, if if a if a you know server goes down and needs to be replaced uh, in a failover scenario, they, you can have an event that's that's raised that triggers a lambda to deal with what you're going to do on all that. That event driven nature to me kind of opened an idea of like there's we have APIs that allow for me to uh, and as as a consumer of data initiate a contact and request data and maybe get that synchronously or asynchronously. But what I really like is to be able to sort of say, hey, I want to know if X ever happens. And uh, and I want to be able to try and receive that. So standard event driven architecture stuff at that point, right? Uh, everything becomes potentially an event. Um, and and you're reacting to what happens in the system and environment. And by the way, just as an aside, Forte, um, when I worked back on that 4GL way back in the late 90s, had it's the core of what it was, was in fact an event loop. And everything that happened in the UI and everything that happened generally at the data layer um, that would be a push model thing that you would be an initiator of activity uh, could be done as an event and most often was. Like everything in the UI was an event for sure. And often we did things at the data layer as events as well. So um, so this is a pattern that has some things. And what got me thinking about flow was, okay, there's this huge flow of events happening within an organization across all of these smaller and smaller building pieces. And I'm gonna explain why that's a good thing in a second. But what happens when those events now cross organizational boundaries, like go from one company to another or go from a government agency to um, to a regulated business or go, you know, there's a number of different uh, scenarios you can draw there. Um, what if there's a standard mechanism by which people can say, hey, I'm searching for event types of events I can subscribe to. I'm subscribing to an event. Maybe I'm paying a fee and subscribing in the sense of of uh, of you know of, of a monthly subscription fee or something like that. Maybe it's free data, um, but I, I'd like to be I'd like to receive that signal. Um, and then uh, uh, you know, and what would happen then if there becomes a marketplace of events that are out there that would drive the connection of businesses and individuals in unique new ways? And we've seen early versions of this with if if this then that um, and and a number of other technologies which are still fairly you need to have some technical acumen to use well. 
But um, and in this case, it would be more at a business layer and more driven uh, in terms of business events that take place and the ability to do this at scale um, and, and do this uh, it, uh, with, uh, um, you know, in a way that it's business critical and mission critical. Um, the um, the the reason I think all of this is uh, very likely to happen is is kind of twofold. So one is um, I'm a big believer that uh, composability will win out over contextual development, and the difference there is simply if uh, a contextual system is something that where you might have a lot of plugins that go in, but this but that application that system defines the process and defines the context in which every executes. Um, and so, you know, numbered things built over the years, SAP would be a good example. Um, you know, we're, we're really, it's built so that, um, you know, you could affect the actions taken within the course of a process generally. Um, but the process is predefined and those systems do great while that process is still critical. But if you have a situation where say 5% of what you want, you want to do is impossible to do because of the process, then that system becomes useless in those scenarios. And that's generally what over time kind of kills those systems. The, the composable aspect of things is like the Linux command line and all the text processing tools that are available in the Linux command line, right? So you can pipe these pre-built things that do work and then define the work, but you can pipe them into any process that you want to pipe them into. And that gives you the ability to compose any number of a myriad of millions of different ways that you would want to be able to process text or, you know, execute other Linux command lines to take action within the operating system or whatever it may be. Um, and that incredibly variety has led to people being able to build an amazing, you know, rich ecosystem of scripts on top of Linux that, you know, really are a big part of why Linux has incredible value. Um, to to most organizations, so that that so that composability piece is a big big piece of it. And then secondly, um, I, I believe very strongly that software, business software, is being built and exists to automate our economy over time. Right, so we're automating more and more and more of the economic activity that takes place within industry. And if that's indeed the case, then the ability for one software system to trigger a transaction in another software system or to react to a transaction that happens in another software system, that becomes really critical because that's how people interact and do um, uh, do economic activity today. So you need to, you know, you need to see that there's something available for you to consume. You need to be able to uh, initiate a, a transaction to find out more about uh, comparative elements that you might want to consume. You need to be able to initiate an activity to cons actually purchase and consume. You need to be able to initiate an activity to schedule an appointment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's um, there's a lot of things where, where things are kind of driven one way. And some of those work well with APIs, but others to me are things that need to be proactively driven from a software system, not from a human being. Um, and so I believe those things are going to eventually make this idea of event flow across organizational boundaries um, grow. And one last thing I want to say very quickly about it is it's not just events, because every time I talk about this, the IoT folks that I know say mm, events are a really large grain thing. In many use cases, you actually want to be able to process the raw data stream because you can get to patterns and pattern discovery faster that way. And so it's actually a combination today. I look at flow as a combination of events, which are discrete activities that have occurred, 
and uh, real-time data flows is just raw data being fed from some source. Mm. That's a lot to think about. But that, you know, it, it it makes me think. I mean, at, at a uh, as you were starting with at a low level, there's sort of the um, there's basically the 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 waiting around to see an event happen in in a uh, a GUI app. Which, if you sort of uh, as as you were kind of doing, extend that to the enterprise as a whole. There's a uh, there's a lot of ni- nice stuff about that model, and you got to remove the GUI part because that's kind of gooey as it were but uh (laughs) it's it's a it's a more decoupled like way of having your architecture set up so that hopefully uh you can more rapidly add new features and therefore different ways that you're operating but yeah the uh the event loop that's good stuff that's it's critical and i think what's interesting is you know a lot of what if you really kind of dig back into what software has been applied where in business a lot of it is to eliminate clerks in the system and clerks to me are people who take a ticket off the top of a queue or a job off the top of a list do that activity whatever it is that needs to be done and pass it on to the next thing down the line in the process right yeah yeah. like the the work the workflow um, of dealing with a with an event basically Right. So, you know, and, and we see even, you know, even bank tellers, the, the demand for bank tellers dropping because there's more and more uh, we're doing more and more things through software to bypass the need for for a person that that's a customer facing clerk. Right. Mm. Um, and so that's that's part of the evidence that I present to sort of say, you know, I, I believe what you know, I believe what's happening here is that we will see more direct interchange between enterprises, between uh, you know, cell phones and enterprises between whatever, and that will be uh, driven but more by an event model over time. And as that becomes open and easily consumable and everything, it becomes more and more like what HTTP did for information linking. Um, it becomes a way of doing activity linking uh, across any number of different boundaries. Mm. Yeah, it's like the uh, like speaking of clerks, it's like uh, it's like that old black and white picture of of a bunch of people going off into the horizon of a of a building sitting at a desk and you know the yeah. joke being like, "Oh, look, this is a spreadsheet of of all these people uh, calculating various <laughs> right. cells." Well, uh thanks for being on. This is a great overview of things and also uh, I've got some homework to figure out product names uh correctly. And, and uh, look that up. I'll get, like I said, I'll get some flashcards. We'll maybe mm-hmm. I'll get quiz next time. Although yeah. I was always a solid uh, B student, so I think the result, results will be predictable. Uh, well, if, if people want to uh, follow up with you or or uh, just kind of see what else you're up to, you got a you got a Twitter account somewhere. I guess it would yeah, be on it's Twitter. Really simple. It's my full name, James Urquhart uh, at James Urquhart uh, on Twitter. I'm, I'm most active there. Um, and, uh, also, uh, just Jay Urquhart at pivotal.io. If you'd like to reach me by email and, uh, happy to talk to whoever and, and, uh, debate, uh, whatever, but I appreciate you guys letting me, uh, ramble on about flow a little bit, but, uh, uh, it's been really fun to be on this podcast. I appreciate mm. it. Well, it's, it's nice to be on. Well, uh, as a reminder, if you haven't checked out the spring one tours, you should go check that out, especially the London one coming up, uh, It'll be enjoyable. And uh, with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.